We're going to be talking about evangelism, and I know this is something that I need to grow in greatly. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the charge that we were given this morning to remember the privilege that we have, the privilege of being chosen by you, the privilege of being made holy by you, the privilege of being able to fulfill your purpose for humanity. And Father, I know there are probably many like myself who are convicted, who are uh, energized to share your glorious gospel with others, to share the light that has transformed us with those who dwell in darkness. And I pray now as we look at a passage of scripture that has been influential in my life that it will serve the same purpose for those men who are listening, for those men who are engaging, that you would take all of us and make us more delight-driven evangelists. Not for our sake, O Lord, but for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, my name is Jeff Terrell. I'm the senior pastor at Ascend Church in Olathe, Kansas. And in fact, they're watching online, and I want to apologize to you gentlemen. You could have had three different breakouts, and unfortunately, you get to listen to me. So I apologize early on that. Uh, But I was listening to Jay Start over there. I would have loved to have attended his session. Uh, The idea of listening to somebody who's actually been on their international mission field and learn from him is attractive to me, so I'll look forward to watching those and their recordings. You know, Mike's message was amazing, and I am going to give a shameless invitation and advertisement for the Stand Firm Conference that is going to take place in October. Uh, As Dave said, this is the 12th. Ironman Summit, and I've been to most of them, and every year I walk away being invigorated by the Word of God, being challenged to live more for Christ, but then I have to wait another year to be able to do this again. And so the leadership of our men's ministry at Ascend has prayerfully been considering how can we do this more than once. And so we are going to do this in October and bringing Mike Summers and Rick Holland to Ascend And you all will be blessed by that. We're also hoping to bring more people from maybe the Northland of Kansas City and maybe even up into the Iowa region to be aware of what God is doing through Ironman. And so you can pray for us, but you can also make plans to join us in October. You got a card in your bag and you can begin signing up today. We know I think about the opportunity to preach at a conference and often you are given a title or you're given a a passage. And when Dave asked me to preach, he gave me the title of evangelism. And for me, that's one of those topics that when you hear it, you cringe. Because typically, as a speaker at a conference, you want to preach on a topic that, while not perfect, you feel like you do well. Evangelism is one of those topics that I continually am convicted that I do not do well. And so in order to set that up, I want to take you through a little personal testimony. It began early in my life. I was growing up in a church. I went to a Christian school, and I remember that evangelism was basically a guy that you brought your friends to during a week of revival. Can anybody relate to me on that? 
Evangelism was the weirdo who stood on the corner of a street with a sandwich board with big words that said something like the world is coming to an end or repent and they had a, a megaphone. That, that for me was what evangelism was. Now as I grew older, I was given tools like tracts and began to understand that there's importance and responsibility for individuals to evangelize, but it still seems so far out there. But I remember my sophomore year of high school going to a summer camp and listening to a speaker by the name of Jim Shetler. Does anybody know who Jim Shetler is? No? Jim Shetler is a dynamic speaker. He was the president of Pensacola Christian College for many years. And Jim Shetler was preaching away, lathered up in a sweat, and he said these words, If you're a Christian, you must evangelize. And at that point, I was convicted. At that point, I knew what I was going to throw my stick in the fire about, if any of you have ever been to summer camps. And from that point on, evangelism began to be this passion of mine. And I started out with a bang, and things were going well, and then kind of life came in, and it went worse, and then I'd get convicted, and I'd get better. And that was my life until seminary. And in seminary... We had a class that was actually entitled Evangelism. And so I knew I had to take this. And then I started to sweat in my palms when I realized that we were going to actually have to go do it. We were told that our assignment was to go to some public place and to share the gospel with whoever we found. And so I went to Cal State University Northridge because I was attending the Master's Seminary. Went to thousands of students, had two conversations. My palms were sweating, the hair, and I used to have hair on the back of my neck was standing, but I did it. And I walked away from those two conversations sensing that I had evangelized. Well done, Jeff. But then as I started to look back on it, I realized, well, nobody made a profession of faith. In fact, they didn't even agree with what I was saying. So did evangelism actually take place? Well, fast forward to becoming a pastor. And when you become a pastor, you are a vision caster for the church, along with, in our church, elders. And started to think through it. Well, how are we going to do evangelism at Ascend Church? Started thinking through, maybe there's some ministries, maybe there's some programs, maybe there's some books that we can go through. But in that journey, the Lord, I believe, gave me this passage of Scripture. And it has served me well in this topic of evangelism. And I submit to you that my prayer has been for quite some time that it will serve you in the same way. And that is to move evangelism from duty. And maybe even some of you listened to the message of Mike Summers and knew this is what I need to do. I, I know I've got to do this. And Mike has challenged me. He showed me from Scripture. He's spoken so eloquently. I know I must do that. But then you felt the weight of the duty of evangelism. And so what this passage has done for me is actually move it past duty to delight. Because I remember Matt Chandler saying one time that duty that is not driven by delight won't last. 
And so if we're talking about evangelism only in the category of duty, it's not going to last. It's going to be ebbs and flows. But to have a consistent, sustainable life of evangelism, it must be driven by delight. And so some preachers are more creative than I am. I'm going to give you the key ingredient. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 1, and I'm going to actually read the passage in which the key ingredient is found. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John writes very interesting words. Remember, John spent three years with the man in whose presence he was standing. When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And the key ingredient to delight-driven evangelism is in these two verses. But you're going to have to wait for me to prove it by unpacking this chapter. Now, before we dive in, I want to just say that I'm hoping that I finish in enough time where we can actually talk about this. You see, I think sometimes we come to conferences and we download two or three sermons and we've got a lot of information, but, but the moving of information and knowledge to application is what God intends. When you, when you listen to Mike preach, that, that purpose clause is crucial. In fact, one of my favorite words in the New Testament is the Greek word henna. It means so that. Because if we grab theology and knowledge without a so that application, then knowledge is dead, knowledge puffs up. So I'm hoping that we have the opportunity to actually discuss this and to ask questions and to move this from knowledge and learning to living. And so you can be writing down questions as we study. I want us to see four questions that will move our evangelism from duty to delight. The first one is this. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast? Look at verse 9. The apostle John writes, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom. Well, the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. There's a historical context. There's headlines that were going on in the days of this original writing. And the headlines are that Christians are being persecuted. The headlines is that the Roman Empire is not favorable toward Christians. And so John says, I'm experiencing, just like all of you to whom I'm writing, tribulation. And he explains why he's experiencing tribulation. He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So there's a contrast that's going on. John has just said the kingdom. You saw that in the text. The, the kingdom that John is referring to is in contrast with the Roman Empire kingdom. The Roman Empire that since Caesar Augustus promised peace. If you've studied history, you know there was a season of the Roman Empire that was known as the Pax Romana. The, the Roman peace. Caesar Augustus ushered in decades of unparalleled peace. And from that point on, Rome promised peace. And they did so in very interesting ways. 
They would often open the door for human beings to express their lusts. They often turned their heads away from immorality and, in fact, encouraged it. They constantly promoted materialism. They made it easy for a lot of people to flourish economically. Sounds a lot like another country, doesn't it? There is a contrast between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. In fact, most likely, John was in isolation because of the Caesar by the name of Domitian. Listen to what historians tell us about Domitian. He left his brother to die. He seduced his niece. He killed people for making jokes. He was sensitive about his baldness. On that one, I can relate. He had a protruding belly, spindling legs, a wart on his forehead that festered and bled, and he demanded that people called him Lord and God. Sounds like a peaceful guy, doesn't he? And yet the distraction of the Roman peace was that our lusts can be fulfilled. The distraction of Roman peace is that everything our hearts desire is available to us. And friends, we live in that world. It's no different than the time of Revelation. And it will continue to be this way, I believe the Bible tells us, until Jesus comes back and actually sets up his eternal kingdom. So this is a perpetual contrast that we experience. And yet the tendency is for us as human beings to enjoy fantasy, isn't it? Maybe some of you are video gamers. I love video games. I I love playing MLB The Show. I've created myself in that, and I finally made it to the majors. Those of you who don't know about my history, I made it as far as single A and then got released and realized, wow, I'm not as good as I thought I was. But, but in, the, in the video game world, I can create myself and I can be who, I, who I'm not. We, we, we create fantasies in a number of different ways, but all of our efforts are to avoid the reality of the contrast. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon writes a word that is translated over and over, vanity. But the word vanity translates a Hebrew term, hebel. And I think what Solomon is driving at is that everything the world has to offer is like the smoke that lingers after someone blows out the candles on a birthday cake. It's real. You can touch it. You can move it. You can even put it in your pocket, but it does not last. And what John is doing is reminding people of the reality of this present world. He's reminding people that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world do not work together. There is a contrast here. And so when it comes to evangelism, we must first understand and see the contrast. There are two different kingdoms out there. Paul, or John says that he is a brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom that is the result of the contrast. Number two, do you see the crowning? Do you see the crowning? So we understand the context in which we find ourselves for evangelism, the contrast between the fool's gold of the kingdom of the world and the actual gold of the kingdom of God. 
While Rome promised peace, they brought tribulation. The kingdom of God in this life promises tribulation with an already but not yet peace. But it all then moves from that context to this crowning that is unpacked in the opening verses of Revelation 1. For those of you who are interested in the details, I think it's interesting that the four authors of the book of Revelation are present in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, John, he's the human author, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, referring there to the Father, and from the seven spirits and the symbolism there, we believe, points us to the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about in verse 5, Jesus Christ. Now look at the way that John describes Jesus Christ. He was the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. And then look at this. He is the ruler of the king of kings. Now, what I want you to see right in this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the importance of it. He's explaining that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, but he is different than anyone else who has ever died. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth because he has been crowned by completing his mission. You know, it's interesting. During the reign of George V, there was a young lady who was in line to the throne. That was George V's granddaughter, Elizabeth. She was third in the line to the throne because her uncle was first and her father was second. And so it was very unlikely that she would ever ascend to the throne. And yet, as you know with history, her uncle abdicated and then her father died. And on February 6, 1952, she went from being a family member of the monarchy to being the Queen of England. Now, now, what's different in that illustration than the king that is being crowned here is that he's always been God. He's always been the creator. Colossians 1 says, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. And you can make a theological argument that he's been king forever. And yet what John reveals here is the unique Aspects of this king. As the firstborn of the dead, he raised from life. None had ever done this before. Certainly some in history have died for others. And in fact, the Bible tells us that there were a couple accounts of people who actually rose from the dead. But nobody ever died for the sins of others rose from the dead never to die again, and then were crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That makes this person that we're reading about most unique than any other person. And that begins to stoke the fires of our passion for evangelism. When you begin to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when you begin to understand that He is the authority above all authorities, that no matter how much the nations of the world assemble against God Himself, we have the King that supersedes them all, and that should instill in us a little excitement. John reveals the importance of the resurrection when it comes to evangelism. We need to see and own and love his crowning. But number three, do you see the characteristics? 
Do you see the characteristics? We see the contrast. We see the crowning. We see the characteristics. And, and what I'm doing right now is, is, is a little bit unconventional. What I'm doing right now is I'm not setting up a formulaic message on evangelism. I'm actually painting around that formula for the purpose of longevity. For the purpose of deep rootedness. Because if we can understand all of this around the formula of evangelism, it will drive our duty of evangelism with delight. And this is really, for me, where the delight begins to bubble up. Do you see the characteristics? In verse 1, John says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ wants his people to know. This is what Jesus Christ wants his church to know. We're studying the book of Revelation as a church. It's one thing to read it. It's one thing to give opinions about it. It's another thing to actually preach it verse by verse. It's extremely humbling. I'm enjoying it, but I'm also tremendously challenged. But where I am at this point is that I believe the purpose of the book of Revelation to the original audience is the same that it is to us in the 21st century, and that is God revealing from heaven's perspective all that's going on from the time that Jesus rose from the grave to the time that he returns to set up his kingdom for the purpose of us conquering and enduring. And so what Jesus wants his people to understand will fuel us so that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much persecution we experience, no matter how much overwhelming the headlines are for us in the world, we have everything we need to conquer, endure, and fulfill his mission. And what he does before he gets to the command of John is actually reveal himself. And that's the beauty of this. Look down at verse 12. After John heard this booming voice, which by the way, if the door slammed open right now and somebody came with a loud James Earl Jones voice, those of you who remember who that is, we would all turn around and we would look. And that's what John does in verse 12. He hears this loud voice and he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, and look what he does, he describes what he sees. Now, before I studied this, I thought what John was describing is literally what he saw. I thought John was describing that there's this being in front of him who's wearing this bright gold sash and white hair and flaming eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. But if you study what the Bible intends in prophetic literature, it's symbolic. But what I want you to see is that it's symbolic to draw our attention back to the Old Testament. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, would you write these down, because these will serve you well, to tie the New Testament to the Old Testament. I think too often as American Christians, we are New Testament Christians, and there's value to that. This is the new covenant revealed. This is Jesus revealed. This is instruction to the church. Absolutely. But the expectation of our God is that we are Genesis to Revelation Christians. 
And when we begin to see how the New Testament authors connect to the Old Testament, the Old Testament becomes less of a shelf for dust to collect and more of a brilliant display of what is more vividly revealed in the New Testament. So here's what John does. He describes Jesus in Old Testament terms for the purpose of putting his character on display. He says in verse 12, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. You can write down Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. When you look at Zechariah's description of the vision that he saw, he's using similar vocabulary. And the way that John describes this is, I believe, undeniably a reference to that passage in Zechariah. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like what? What does it say in the text? A son of man. Now, why am I doing this? Because I think sometimes you might come to a conference or sit in a church and listen to a guy preach and think, I could never do that. I could never find that in the text. What I'm trying to do by modeling this and having you look in the text is to see you can do this yourself. We might just get paid to spend a little bit more time in the text But we're modeling to you, not that we are brilliant, not that we are educated, but we're modeling to you how to do it yourself. And so I want you to see it in the text. This is one like a son of man. There's a phrase there that points back to the Old Testament. Do you ever read in the Gospels and see Jesus refer to himself as the son of man and think, why did he do that? I submit to you it's because of Daniel 7, 13. In fact, you can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see that Son of God is a a phrase that was very important for the progress of the story. In Genesis 5, 1 and 2, you see the genealogy of Adam. And as you look at the genealogy of Adam and you look at the vocabulary of what Moses, the author, does there as he points back to the image and likeness of God and in so doing sets up the fact that as Seth is son to Adam, so Adam was son to God. And what's awesome about that is that the title son of God is a formal title. It's a title that communicates unique relationship, unique expectations, and covenant. And so when we see that Adam was the first son of God, how did he do with those expectations? He failed miserably. The next candidate of the son of God title holder is found in Exodus 4.22. As God is instructing Moses to go to Pharaoh and to talk to him, he says, tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. How did Israel do on the unique expectations that God had for them? The next title holder is found in 1 Samuel 7.14. As God is giving out the Davidic covenant to David, he says that you will have a son that I will refer to as son. And Solomon had a unique relationship with God, a unique covenant with God, a unique expectations that God had for him. And how did Solomon do? You can do it. Well, the next candidate of the title holder is found in this Daniel 7 passage. That there is one like a son of man who will approach the ancient of days and to him will be given an everlasting kingdom. 
And what Jesus is doing by referring to himself as son of God over and over and over again is drawing the Jews, drawing the religious leaders back to Daniel 7 to show that where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where Solomon failed, he succeeded. And here, that's, I believe, what John's doing is he's showing that he turns and he sees the one who is the true son of God, who is the Daniel 7 fulfillment of that, who succeeded where all others failed. He goes on to describe that this one that he stands before was clothed in a long robe. When we see long robes in the Old Testament, we usually see them referring to the office of the priest. I love that Mike unpacked this as he made it clear that we as followers of Christ are a royal priesthood. And he took us back to Exodus 19, and I think that's valid, but I would even go back further than that. Go back to Genesis 2. And you see that God placed Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And those two terms are brought together only in the rest of the Old Testament in describing the activity of a priest. And you constantly see that that this priesthood and this prophet office and this king office are all pointing to someone future who will be perfect where all else failed. And that is the fulfillment of Christ himself, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And I think that is why John is referring to Jesus here as a one clothed with a long robe. Then he says, with a golden sash around his chest in the Old Testament, This refers to royalty. And you can see here where priest and king are beginning to bubble up to the surface. Then he says in verse 14 that his hairs were white. And you go back to Daniel 7 and you see that the whiteness of hair for the ancient of days is an evidence of his deity. John is showing here that this one that he is standing before is not just an angelic creature. This is God himself. He has white hair just like the ancient of days in Daniel 7. And then he says in verse 14, he has eyes of fire. You can write down Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6. And the vision that Daniel has of the man that was standing before him is described in a lot of these same terms. Go to verse 15. His feet, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire. This is also found in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6. It says that his voice roared. Daniel 10, 6 says that individual had a voice that roared. Verse 16, he held seven stars in his hands. Zechariah 4, 2, Daniel 12, 3. John is describing this one who stands before him in terms that would draw the reader back to the Old Testament. Then look at verse 16, the two-edged sword. Isaiah 11:4 and 49:2. Verse 16, his face shone like the sun in full strength. Daniel 12:3 and Judges 5:31. No wonder John in verse 17 falls on his face. I have the blessing of being the IT guru for one of my family members who will remain nameless. And no matter how much he or she 
is instructed and helped by me, the same questions come up over and over and over again. Well, a little while back, I was logging into his computer, and he told me he was having some computer problems and email problems, and I started noticing a common denominator. He was getting a lot of emails from President Trump, Marco Rubio, and Ron DeSantis. Pretty impressive. I told him to delete it immediately. Why? Because of the characteristics. Look at the email that was sending those messages to him, and it was not from President Trump. Look at the words that were shared in the email. They were not words that President Trump would use. Look at the link where you could share your bank account information. (laughs) And it was offshore. You see, characteristics reveal authenticity, don't they? But listen, beloved, I I think that there are too many men who are trying to evangelize a Jesus of their own construction. A Jesus that they have not built upon the foundation of Scripture. A Jesus that they've heard from a preacher and then they just parrot. A Jesus that they had some experience with in the past and they try to recreate that. Friend, I would submit to you that you will never get to a place where evangelism is driven by delight until the Jesus that you're evangelizing people with is the Jesus of Genesis to Revelation. The characteristics that John puts on display by connecting the dots of this one who is standing before him with the Old Testament To show that Jesus is the yes and amen. That all of the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. That he is the offspring of Genesis 3.15. That he is the reason why the Davidic line continued up to him. I was listening to a podcast on the way in. Bible Talk. If if you're looking for a podcast, I would highly recommend this. It's Bible Talk, a podcast by Nine Marks. Jim Hamilton and Sam Amadi, and they're walking through the Old Testament verse by verse and showing how it fits in the big story. And they were talking about Judges and showing how the author of Judges puts Judah on display, reminds Israel that when Judah was at the forefront, God blessed them. And when Judah was not, he didn't. And who comes from Judah? Jesus. And when you begin connecting these dots, when you begin seeing Jesus as a Genesis to Revelation Jesus, when you start to realize he is the Son of Man, he is the Son of God, he's the creator of the universe, man, you should start getting excited. Do you see the characteristics? But then number four, do you see your charge? Do you see your charge? And use charge because it's a C. Just to be honest with you, I did not do well in homiletics in seminary. But a charge is instruction. That's what I'm using it as. It's what often the section of a wedding is referred to that the pastor gives instruction to the bride and the groom or instruction to the congregation. So what is the instruction that Jesus gives. And I've already tipped my hat to what the key ingredient is, but now let's look at 17 and 18. So when John sees Jesus, and I believe describes him because now he understands him as he truly is, 
He fell at his feet as though dead. Now what's interesting is that Jesus identifies this posture as a result of, verse 17, fear. Now most of us don't evangelize because of some fear motivation, right? We fear rejection. We fear we'll say the wrong thing. We fear that we won't have an answer to a question. We fear because we understand the gravitas and the importance of the transaction that we're trying to, to, to move toward. We, we, we have all of these ingredients that solicit within us fear or elicit within us fear. And what John is doing here is modeling actually that Fear in and of itself is not bad. Fear can be appropriate. In fact, when you experience something that you can't control or explain or fix, a natural response is fear. There should be a weight that we experience when we are confronted with something that we can't explain, we can't control, and we can't fix. So what John is doing here is an actually appropriate response. But when we study the scripture, there's often terms that have both righteous expressions and sinful expressions, right? Think of the topic of anger. There's a righteous anger and there is a sinful anger. Think of the topic of jealousy. There's a righteous jealousy, there is a sinful jealousy. Well, the same thing is true with fear. And to illustrate that, would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14? And while you're at Mark 14, go over to Mark 4, because that's actually where I wanted you to turn. <laughs> Mark 4 is the account of the storm that quickly rose up on the Sea of Galilee. Without going into too much detail about this, understand the significance of the storm when you have lifelong fishermen who are greatly afraid. So here they are, afraid, and Jesus says to them in verse 40, why are you so afraid? And what Jesus isn't saying here is it's not appropriate to be afraid. What Jesus is saying here is it's inappropriate to have the wrong kind of fear. And it's interesting, the word that is translated afraid here is one that is translated as somebody who always runs and runs away for nothing. In other words, you hear a sound in the night, and instead of realizing that you're dad and that you need to step up, you say, honey, can you go check it out? That's this afraid. It's a cowardly afraid. It's an afraid that produces Lack of movement, lack of action. And what Jesus is saying is when you see my character on display, don't be that kind of afraid. The proper fear is actually found in verse 41. They were were filled with great fear and said to one another, look at this, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When you go to the Old Testament, there's only One person that the sea and the wind obey. And that's God himself. And what you see in this question is that the disciples are beginning to grasp it. Their fear has moved from cowardly, lack of action fear to wrestling and progress. 
And friend, I wanted you to see that because I want to draw our attention back to Revelation 1. One of the marks of a true disciple is the one who in crisis stands with a confidence in God. Friend, evangelism is crisis because there is a contrast. Do you see it? Evangelism is a crisis because we are confronted in that moment with the infinity infinity of God and the finiteness of me. In evangelism, we are confronted with crisis because we recognize I can't do this, only God can. And we are confronted like I am every time I stand up to preach, as I know my other pastor brothers are, with our inadequacy. But it's in that moment of crisis, if we have the right fear, it moves us to a confidence in God. So when we see the resurrected Savior as he truly is. We recognize the key ingredient to delight-driven evangelism is the character of God. Beloved, that has served me so well. And the more I get to know his character, the more I plumb the depths, the more I pursue doctrines that stretch me. If you're sitting here today no matter how much training you've had, no matter how much experience you've had, and to say, I don't really have anything else to learn about God, shame on you. Friends, we always should be striving to know him more. That's why we study theology. The end game of theology is not systems. The end game of theology is not winning an argument. The end game of theology is to know him to love him more, to magnify Christ more, and to the degree that that is the pattern of my life. Guess what? Evangelism flows out of that. I don't have to think about four spiritual laws. I don't have to think about a conversation with somebody about the chiefs and, oh, how can I spin it to Jesus? Because I love him so much. And I know chiefs are enjoyable. I know you're praying we get our Q&A done early. But guess what? It's a bell. I know relationships are great. Wife, a wife is great. But it's a shadow of the substance of the relationship between Christ and the church. Friends, when we begin to see this and begin to study this, and this becomes what we own and who we are, then guess what? I can talk to you about the chiefs, but I'm going to be looking for opportunities to steer that conversation. Let me just give you an example before we transition to some questions, if you have them. My favorite team is the Vikings. Yeah. I have had 48 years of pain and suffering and can relate to the Apostle John about tribulation. But as I listen to you talk about your chiefs, and I love the chiefs too, I can move to the Vikings and I can go very quickly to suffering. I can go very quickly to how last week I had a wedding and I didn't get to watch the debacle that was their home field advantage game against the Giants. And I can tell them that even though there was pain and even though it was a difficult evening, I woke up the next day with hope. What was my hope based on? 
Not that they'll get rid of Kirk Cousins. <laughs> my hope isn't that the Vikings will someday make it to the Super Bowl and maybe even win. My hope is found in the substance of Christ. Would you like to hear more about that? Now we're into evangelism. Father, I thank you for the journey you've had me on. I pray that somehow the journey of my life can be relatable to these men. Father, we are placed here on this earth when we have been transformed into a royal priesthood to fulfill the mission. What a privilege that is. And that mission is accomplished through sharing, through speaking. And I love that Jesus told John to not stay on the ground, but to write, to communicate. That is our task. That is our privilege. May you make it our delight. And for me, you continue to grow that delight as I get to know you more. As I begin to see Jesus more vividly. As I begin to understand the ramifications of his resurrection. And as that begins to bubble up in my own life, it then moves me to share. It moves me to move people past the glittering fool's gold that the kingdom of the world offers to see the true substance that is found only through a relationship with you because of Christ. So even now, Lord, as we transition to maybe some questions, I pray that you would use this time to not put me in the seat of the expert, but for us to discuss how more practically we can move our learning into living so that next year when we gather together, we can be able to share stories of planting and watering and celebrating the fruit of the gospel of evangelism. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so men, listen, this is an opportunity. There's no dumb questions. Uh, if you don't have a question, then we can just break and we can do fellowship. But I just thought it'd be an opportunity to just be able to ask questions and then maybe be able to move this living into more practical living. So would you just raise your hand if you have a question? And then John will come by and put a mic in front of you so that we can hear it and then hopefully work together to get practical and apply. Yeah, brother. How do you think this passage that you're talking about in Revelation from John's perspective relates to Ezekiel, Isaiah, and even Paul's experience? Yeah, so I think that he would answer that by the rest of Revelation. And I think what you start to see as you study Revelation and even look at these symbols and these images that he describes that, you know, maybe we've thought were just kind of crazy, fanciful attempts for him to describe something with human terms, I think he's actually drawing from the Old Testament. And so I think he draws from Ezekiel. I think he draws from Zechariah. I think he draws from Daniel extensively. And if you want to look for some resources that might help you grow in your understanding of that, I can't... Highly enough recommend the commentary in the Preach the Word commentary series by James Hamilton. It is a phenomenal commentary on Revelation that points back to Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. So I would say in this passage, I think the passages that I reference are at least the ones that I can see that he was drawing from. But throughout Revelation, he certainly draws from those other ones. And brother, I would say I think that's a clue for our understanding Revelation. Because I don't think we interpret Revelation in a vacuum as though it's, it's, it's a unique book. I think he's actually prophesying in the way that Zechariah and Daniel and Ezekiel and the Old Testament prophets did. So as we interpret that, we should interpret Revelation. Great question.
I can't, I can't relate. Yeah, I want to, <laughs> I want to share the gospel at work. Yeah. And uh, so sometimes it's a little difficult because, I mean, I've done it. Hmm. But oftentimes, more often, I give kind of a, would you like to come to church? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. more of an invitation because it can get sticky at work. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and, and I know I only work one day a week, but um, just kidding. I, I do have a background in, uh, I pl- played baseball for a living for a while, and then I was in the corporate world for a few years, so I can relate to that. And it, and it seems like now more than it was back then, the restrictions from human uh, resources and, and management are even greater than they were back then, so I, I hear what you're saying. There's a phrase that I've used in my own life, and I, I've commended to others that I would give to you and to our brothers, and that's look for red apples. And what I mean by that is that the the human life is filled with trials. It just is. I mean, read Ecclesiastes and just reflect on your own life, and you'll see that the human life is is filled with trials. So your coworkers are going to go through trials. And so looking in those trials to ask questions in a way that reveals, are they interested in finding answers? I find that a lot of our evangelism doesn't go with that mindset, and we simply look at it as a task that we're checking off. But if we would understand that God is actually doing a work in their hearts, and if he's not, no matter how eloquent that we are, there's not going to be a response. And so as 1 Corinthians 3 says, some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the increase. I'm usually asking questions in those environments, looking to see, is there any evidence that God's working on their heart? Are they asking questions? Are they looking for answers? And the redder the apple, the more opportunity I have to press in. So that's where I would start to answer your question. Um, Some employers allow you to have Bibles in your cubicle. I used to have a Bible that I would keep out on my desk, and it would sometimes spark conversations. Um, I think, though, the thing that I would encourage all of us to recognize is that the Activity of evangelism is not reserved for the corporate church. It's really impressed upon us as individuals. And so while the church offers a venue for evangelistic opportunities, uh, it's our responsibility. And so God has placed you in the cubicle next to your coworkers and on those teams because he wants you to be salt and light. And I think we just have to be more creative in this environment. But I would look for red apple conversations, ask questions to determine, is that apple ripening at all? And if not, share the hope that lies in you, as Peter says. That's a start. Jeff, I think, uh, sorry, that's all. Um, my wife and I kind of grew up a little bit in France years ago. Uh, we went to probably the last Billy Graham crusade mm. across the nation, right? And that was pretty impactful. Um, I saw that as, you know, hey, this is, you know, how evangelism is done. There's a great altar call that engages people uh, who are willing in, uh, in a prayer of faith and conversion. Mm. Listening to some other good 
good man uh, turned into evangelism. Sharing the gospel, but letting him walk away and say, this is a decision for you. I want you to think about this. I'm like, wow, boy, that seems cool and a great way to relieve a burden of my own mm. and fear. That's the way ask and yeah, I think that, that's something I think most of us can relate to. I, I really struggle. I can share the gospel with passion. I can share what God's done in my life, but I struggle with what to do at the end. And so what I would do is instead of answering it from my own experience, answer it from Scripture. And I love what the Apostle Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We, we, we persuade men. And so we are moving people to respond. And so I've, I've got to grow in that, and I would just encourage all of us to make sure that we are growing in that, that when we share with a coworker and we sense that they're getting it, ask them, would you like to commit your life to Christ? Would you like to surrender to Christ? I mean, use biblical vocabulary, but ask them. I had a conversation with a guy who uh, repairs our, our car. And just he said his life was a mess and red apple. <laughs> and so I asked questions. And there was a, a day a few weeks ago where he came. And we went out to lunch. And I shared the gospel with him. And I got to the end. And I said, would you like this in your life? Would you want to see your life transformed by submitting to Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, I, I need more time. And, you know, at that point, I wanted to say, oh, he was so close. But I... Kind of a pastor I used to listen to says he, he used to, he evangelizes like an Arminian and he sleeps like a Calvinist. But let me explain that. So uh, what I mean by that is with passion, as though it depended on me, but then you understand that theologically it's, it's God who does the work. And so I think we Calvinists need to move more passionate toward moving people to a response. And in that moment, I was faced with that tension. But I just said, hey, man, I respect that. I'm going to be seeing you more when I bring my car in. You know where I am. But when you're ready and you want to do that, I'm here, man. I'm here. So that's my own experience, but also what Paul says. And I hope that helps. Okay? Do we have time for one more? We have time for one more. We do have a native Minnesota guy back there that really sympathizes with you. Okay. Yes, right? Okay, just as he's walking up there, listen, my, I've only been to one Minnesota regular season game. I got to go to Minneapolis this, this year, and I went to the Dallas Cowboys game. So all you have to do is just look up the schedule, look at the win-loss, and you know that was a disaster. So, yep. <clears throat> Mm. Yeah, you know, so we, we planted our church 12 years ago, and the uh, prevailing strategy for planting churches 12 years ago was go to the unchurched. Start your church with the unchurched. But I, I looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and I saw that, or 4, and it, it seems like the, the church is really to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. So uh, I think the greatest evangelism that's taken place at our church is in two ministries. One, it's in the preaching of the word on Sunday morning. And we've heard testimonies of people who thought they were saved but uh, weren't. And they've given their life to Christ. And then also in kids ministry. And so I, I think that in kids ministry, there's a lot of parents that assume that because kids are in a church and they grew up in a Christian home that they are Christians, but they're not. And you know, there's a whole other topic of the age of accountability. We won't dive into that. You can ask that to the panel so that I don't have to answer that. But um, I, I would say that the, un, or the church 
are also a great opportunity for evangelism. But that's where I think, brother, and this is where I would close, is I think when we, when we look at evangelism as a transaction or we compartmentalize it, we miss what the, the Bible says evangelism is. Evangelism is simply us sharing our excitement about the character of God. And we do that in the church, we do that outside the church, we do it to coworkers, we do it to classmates, we do it to brothers in small groups. If that's what we're doing, we're evangelizing. And at the end of the day, what is evangelism? When you go to the root of the word, it's sharing the good news. And the good news is that as brothers in Christ who have been saved for decades, we can continue to know him more. That we can continue to move from being children and young men in the faith to being fathers in the faith and then multiplying that and raising up leaders in the church, and that's evangelism. Praise God for that. Thanks, John.